Well, as our host team is continuing to collect our offering and they're passing out those candles, I, I want to ask you to go ahead and to grab your Bibles out, if you will, and to go to Luke chapter 9 with me, Luke 9. Or if you have a device with a Bible app on it, go ahead and turn your Bibles on, go to Luke 9. And if you showed up tonight and you don't have anything with you, that's okay. Everything we're going to read together will be on the screens, and so you can just feel free to follow along there, all right? But Luke 9, verses 18 through 22, or we're going to be hanging out tonight. Um, I don't think it really matters who we are, uh, what our past in church looks like, if we have one, if we don't have one. I don't think it matters what we walked in the room believing tonight. I think we can all agree that there's not another time of year where Jesus is more front and center than during this time of year that we're currently in. I mean, you can turn on the radio, you can hear songs being sung about Jesus, you can turn on the TV and see movies that include the story of Jesus, like the always entertaining Charlie Brown Christmas. Yes, can I get an amen? Yeah? You can drive through your neighborhood, you can see nativity set up portraying the birth of Jesus in your neighbor's yard. Um, you can even turn on the news this time of year and hear people arguing still about the fact that they feel like people are, you know, declaring war on Jesus at Christmas by saying happy holidays rather than Merry Christmas. And listen, this is another sermon for another day, but I just want to give you something free, all right? I don't think Jesus really cares that much, right? Like, I don't think Jesus gets offended when the 16-year-old kid at Old Navy says happy holidays to you in place of Merry Christmas. I, I really don't. I think instead, because of what I see about Jesus in this book, that Jesus would rather us spend more of our time loving people like he'd love people if he was here than arguing with them about something that at the end of the day is really petty and doesn't make much of a difference, right? So get another sermon for another day, but I think we can all agree. Again, Jesus, he's front, he's center during this time of year, and because that's true, listen, in a way, all of us as individuals are forced to consider and maybe to even reconsider what it is we think about him. You see, because Jesus is constantly in our face during the Christmas season, it's really difficult for any of us to avoid logically reasoning at some level about who we believe Jesus to be. And in the passage we're going to look at together tonight from Luke 9, we find a large crowd of people at this same crossroads. They've been confronted with the literal presence of Jesus, and they're wrestling with what they think and what they believe about him. And what's interesting is Jesus, he's actually curious to know what the crowd has to say about who he is. And I'm going to show you this in a moment when we read some key verses together. But first, I want to tell you about this crowd, okay? We read in the scriptures that this crowd is made up of about 5,000 men. And when you add women and children back into that number, I mean, you could be talking a crowd upwards of 20,000 people. So in Luke 9, a lot of people are hanging out with Jesus. Um, this is a crowd of people who have heard Jesus teach. Some of them have been supernaturally healed by Jesus or his disciples from sickness and disease. Some of them have had demons cast out of them by Jesus and his disciples. And in Luke 9, when we meet this crowd, Jesus has just performed another miracle on their behalf. You read in Luke 9 that Jesus actually fed this crowd of 20,000 plus people, fed them lunch with five loaves of bread and two fish. Miraculous meal. The Bible says until they were satisfied. That doesn't mean they just left a little full. I mean, they walked away like you walk away from the Golden Corral buffet after you've like thrown down in the middle of the afternoon, that's the kind of fool they were. 
Well, after this meal, the Bible tells us that Jesus and his disciples, that they slip away from the crowd to pray. And we're going to pick up in verse 18, and we're going to read what happens next. Here's what the Bible says. Now, it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and Jesus asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? So Jesus wants to know, all those people out there, the people that heard me teach, the people who we've healed, cast demons out of, the people we just fed lunch, I want you guys to tell me what they're saying about me. Who do they think I am? And the disciples, they go on in verse 19, and they respond, and they answer Jesus and say, well, some say you're John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. So the disciples tell Jesus, basically, the crowd thinks you're just some really important dead guy who's been reincarnated by God, sent now back into the world. I mean, listen, during this time, anybody would have been flattered by that. I mean, anybody would have loved to have been compared to Elijah or John the Baptist or prophets of old like Isaiah, Moses. I mean, that was flattering, right? The crowd's willing to admit Jesus is awesome. He's someone great. He seems really important. He's absolutely powerful. We kind of like him. And it seems like he's here because of God. But listen, this is key. Even though they had great things to say about Jesus, what they believed about him fell so short of who Jesus claimed to be. Like you understand that Jesus, when he was here on the earth, he didn't show up and just claim to be another amazing prophet, right? He didn't show up and say, hey, uh, listen, God sent me. I'm just another great dude like Moses or Isaiah. And if you hang out with me, I'll give you lunch every once in a while and you'll never have to go to the doctor because I'll just heal you, right? Stick around with me. Um, I'll say some great things. I'll give you some great principles to live by and your life will go better than if you weren't following me. That's not what Jesus did. I mean, some of those things are true about him, but instead, when Jesus showed up to the earth, you know who he claimed to be? He claimed to be God. He claimed to be the one that was written about in the Old Testament, the one who would come, who would be called Savior, Messiah, the one that Isaiah called Emmanuel, which literally means God with us. Jesus claimed to be the very one who would come into this world and rescue sinful people from sin, death, and hell and give them new life, both in this life and in eternity. That's who Jesus claimed to be when he showed up on the earth. Now listen, I get that not everybody agrees with that, right? Um, there are plenty of people in our world and maybe some of us in this room tonight who would say, see James, that's dumb. The reason I have problems with Christians is because you guys go around all the time putting words in the mouth of Jesus. And you might be here thinking to yourself, I don't know that I believe Jesus ever claimed to be God. There's a lot of people who would argue that. And if you're here, and maybe that's you, or you walked in as a skeptic, you're trying to figure this Jesus thing out, let me make my case to the, to the other point, okay? So stick with me for a minute. When you pick up this book and you read it, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the stories of Jesus, you'll find Jesus constantly going to individuals and crowds of people and saying to them that their sins were forgiven. He did this all the time. Now listen, this one thing that Jesus did all the time really hacked off the religious leaders of his day. And here's why. Because in Jewish culture and in Jewish religion, everybody knew that no one could forgive anyone else's sin but who? God. 
And so the religious leaders knew that when Jesus went around saying, your sins are forgiven, go and sin no more. He hung out with the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the sinners, the thieves, and he said to them, I'm forgiving you. They knew the implications. They knew that that guy is claiming to be God, and they hated Jesus for it. You find evidence of Jesus claiming to be God in verses like John 8, 58. He's standing in front of a bunch of religious people, and he uses the same title that the Jewish people would have used for the Old Testament God for himself. You remember that story, right, where Moses at the burning bush, and this bush, it's God in the bush, but it's talking to him. And Moses is like, tell me your name. And he says what? I am who I am. Well, in John 8, 58, Jesus calls himself that. Basically, he says to these guys, I'm the one that was talking to Moses in that bush way back then. That, that's who I am. I'm, I'm God. That's why in John 8, 59, the, ne- the very next verse, these same religious leaders picked up stones and tried to kill Jesus. And then one of the most clear passages that we find in the scriptures is in Mark 14, 61 through 62. Jesus is actually on trial in this passage. He's about to be put to death, and he's being questioned by the high priest. And I want you to see what the high priest asks him. Look at the screens with me. He says, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? So what he's asking is, do you really think you're him? You really think you're Messiah, Savior, Emmanuel, God with us, the Savior of the world? You really think you're him? And in Jesus, what does he say? Read those next two words with me. Jesus says, I am. So he's going, yeah, I'm him. Yeah, that's me. Yeah, I'm, I'm claiming to be God in the flesh. I'm the Savior of the world. I'm the Messiah. I'm, I'm here. That's exactly who I am. And then in the last part of this passage, Jesus uses two Old Testament prophecies again to point to his divinity when he says, you'll see me, the son of man, seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. You know what the religious leaders did right after this little conversation with Jesus? They nailed him to a cross. They killed him. And why? Because they were sick of him running around claiming to be God unapologetically, unashamedly, constantly, and consistently, Jesus claimed to be God while he was here on the earth. And listen, if I had time, I could go on and on all night from both the Old and New Testaments to show you this, to give you proof that what Jesus said about himself was true. But here's the point, and don't miss what I'm about to say. The point is that because of Jesus's claims about himself, Every single individual person in this room tonight is forced to do something with Jesus. Like you can't be neutral when it comes to Jesus. Because Jesus claimed to be God, you have to believe something about him. The great author C.S. Lewis made this point in his book, Mere Christianity. And I want you to hear what he says. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, which is, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said wouldn't be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level of the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, 
or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. You see, what Lewis wants us to understand is simple. Is that when it comes to Jesus, you and I, we have to pick a lane. In other words, we, we have to decide something about what we believe concerning who he is. And according to Lewis, we basically have three options, right? We can believe Jesus maybe was a liar, that he was just a really good con man, and he came here and duped a bunch of people into becoming his followers, including many of you that are here tonight. And if that's true, then we're just wasting our time, and we might as well go home and drink eggnog and open some early gifts, right? Or we can believe, secondly, that Jesus was just a lunatic. He, he was a crazy man. He showed up on the earth like another cult leader claiming to be God, and his followers should be walking around in Nike jumpsuits drinking Kool-Aid. We can believe that. Or we can choose to believe that Jesus is actually who he claimed to be, that he's Lord, that he's God, that he's Emmanuel, God with us, that he is, in fact, the Savior of the world who came to rescue you and me from sin, death, and hell so that we could be made into different people. And here's my question for you tonight. What lane are you in? What do you believe concerning Jesus? Who would you tonight, as an individual, say that he is? Well, after the disciples answer this same question on behalf of the crowd, Jesus turns his attention to them. And he asked the 12 guys that were his followers, he said, all right, listen, all those people out there, they think I'm some dead guy brought back to life. I want to know who you guys think I am. And then Peter, right, the guy who could never shut up, so he speaks up. Peter says, well, Jesus, we believe you're him. We believe you're the one. We believe you're the Christ, the very son of God, the one that the Old Testament promised would come. We believe you're him. Now I want you to pick back up in verse 21 with me because what Jesus says next is kind of strange. The Bible says that Jesus strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. So basically what Jesus says to his guys is, you guys are right, ding, 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 awesome job, don't tell anybody right now. And why? Well, to Jesus' point, he, he says, basically, if you guys go telling people now, nobody's really going to believe you. But after I suffer, after I die, after I raise from the dead, then people are going to start believing what it is you have to say about me. Listen, let me go back to this. If you're in the room tonight as a skeptic, as somebody, again, who's here just trying to figure out some things about Jesus and faith and church I want to tell you that the reason that we as Christians believe that Christmas is so important, we believe that Jesus is actually God, is due to the fact that 2,000 years ago, Jesus came into this world and he died and rose from the dead just like he said he would. And here's why that's such a big deal for us. Because the Bible teaches that every single one of us in the room are imperfect, sinful people. And I don't think anybody wants to argue with that, right? Nobody in the room's perfect, and I don't think you want to say that you are. And the Bible tells us that because we're imperfect people, that all of us have done things that have offended God, and what we deserve from God at the end of the day is his anger, his wrath, and his punishment. 
for all eternity. And the really bad news is this. You and I, we can't do anything to work our way out of that. Like we can't, we can't save ourselves from God, right? We can't follow enough rules. We can't be good enough people. We can't come to enough church services to rescue ourselves from him. And because of that, what we need is a savior. We need somebody to rescue us. We need somebody to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. And the beauty of Christmas is this, that the same God from which we needed saving is the same one that came to this earth 2,000 years ago to save us. How beautiful is that? That when you and I could do nothing for ourselves to rescue our own lives from sin, death, and hell, that God wrapped himself in flesh and he said, I'm gonna go do it for him. And he stepped into this world as Jesus Christ and lived a perfect life, the life you and I couldn't live so that at the end of his life, he could go to a cross and die in our place for our sins, taking the punishment from God that we deserved. And then three days later, he rose from the dead to conquer death and hell on your behalf so that you could be made into a new person and enjoy an eternity with God. That's what Christmas reminds us of. The God we needed saving from is the God who came to save us. That when we couldn't love him and when we couldn't pursue him, that he loved us and he pursued us. And the death and resurrection of Jesus lets us know that Jesus is in fact God and he has the power to change our lives. So the question again, what lane are you in? What what do you believe concerning Jesus? Who do you say he is? And here's why I keep asking that question and we're gonna get ready to close. You see, I have to believe that some of us walk in the room tonight um, in a desperate place. Maybe we don't want to admit it, and maybe we're really good at faking it. But I have to believe that some of us walked in this room in a really desperate place. And here's what I mean. I think there are some of us here tonight desperate for change. We desperately want our lives to be different. We wake up every single day and we just feel burdened by so much. There's so many things that we feel in bondage to and we don't know how to get away. We don't know how to experience freedom from those things. And that's you tonight. I think some of us are here and we're desperate to feel some sorts, uh, some sort of purpose and meaning in life. Like maybe you wake up each day and you just wonder, what in the world am I here for? What's this all about? And then I think others of us walk in the room desperate for hope. Like we look at it, our future, and we are hopeless because we are so unsure of what it holds for us. Look at me and listen. I think you being here tonight is not an accident. And I believe you being here tonight didn't just happen by coincidence. I truly believe with all my heart that you're here tonight because God is pursuing you. He's chasing you down. He used your neighbor and free dinner to get you in the building, right? He used your family and being in town for Christmas to get you here so that you could hear me say to you from this stage that Jesus Christ is God and he's powerful enough to give you everything you desperately want and need in this life and in the next. I believe God brought you here tonight so that you could hear me tell you that Jesus, because he's God, is powerful enough to free you from whatever has you in bondage, that he's powerful enough to give you purpose and meaning in life that will leave you forever changed. 
that he's powerful enough to offer you a love and acceptance that you will never find in anyone else. And he is powerful enough to give you hope for your future because he can make you a new person and save you from death and hell one day. That's who Jesus is and that's what he wants to do for you. So what do you have to do? Well, here's the beauty of it. Nothing. Nothing. You just got to reach out and accept all that Jesus wants to offer you. That, that's it. That's all you have to do. Now, I know when some of us hear that, we're skeptical, right? Why in the world would he just go giving me something like that? I mean, that seems crazy. Some of us, we have a hard time believing that Jesus would actually work for us. Right? Like you're sitting here going, James, you don't know my past. You don't know my life. I'm not so sure about this. Well, I want you, as we get ready to close, to hear a story from, uh, from a man that goes to our church named Brandon. And uh, Brandon basically went from atheism to belief in Jesus through um, just some different experiences in a season of time. And I really pray that Brandon's story will encourage some of us tonight who are skeptical about Jesus to take that first step of putting our faith in him as God's Savior and Lord. So I want you to turn your attention toward the screens and let's check out Brandon's story. Married young, um, I mean, I, was, I think I was 19, had my first daughter when I was 19. Um, second daughter came around when I was 22. Uh, still essentially a, a little boy inside. I mean, way too young, way too much responsibility for my age. Uh, neither of us were, were believers in Christ. We, we didn't really have the moral foundations at all. Uh, I mean, growing up, my, my family definitely loved me and they, they laid out some rules, but for the most part, we were fairly free in the house to, you know, as long as we didn't do anything too terrible to, uh, to do what we wanted. My wife decided that she would pursue others, uh, made the, the marriage fairly difficult, so decided it was, it was time to, to get out, you know, ended the marriage. Um, time following that, my, my daughters were, of course, at that point, split through you know, to two households rather than one. I love my girls. I love my girls. They were probably my, my life. So there was this church outside of the neighborhood. Uh, pastor invited my daughters um, to the Wednesday puppet show, um, which again, I thought was incredibly strange. Um, but once I, I got to know a few of them, I uh, realized they wouldn't sketch as I thought. So I let my daughters go. They continued going for, for several weeks, maybe a couple months before I actually agreed to um, to come to the Sunday service. One of the really cool things about Clay, his name's Clay Willis, um, you know, he's just a genuine guy. Um, I didn't feel as if he was stalking me to, to try to you know, recruit me into his cult, which you know, I, I've, I felt like that was the case a lot of times before. And more importantly, I didn't feel like he was just lying to me. You know, in the past, it, I would feel like people were glad-handing me, that's, that's what I like to call it, where they say, oh, you know, bless you, sir, that type of thing. I, I had no interest in that. I, I just wanted someone that believed passionately and could actually talk about it. He taught me a lot. He, more than anything, he engaged me on a level that no one else had been uh, really willing to engage on. You know, in the past, people would just say, well, you just need to go to church. You can learn all these things at church. Well, I don't really want to go to church. Why don't you just tell me what you believe? And I got to the point to where I knew yeah, I, I, I've either got to end this or I've got to find some other source of joy. Once I realized that 
It's through Christ that He gave me the freedom that I'd been longing for all along. Uh, it was only then that I was able to to live outside these these bounds of other people's expectations of, of you know these other other people's influences, negative or positive, on my life. Uh, it was that freedom I'd been looking for all along. Uh, that's where it was at. It was in Christ, and you know, I'm thankful to all those. You know, even some of the negative instances that led me to that place, but it's the pursuit of freedom, pursuit of love. I'm, I'm so thankful for all that. This is really the first year that uh, my wife and I have kind of done the whole Santa thing with our two-year-old daughter because she kind of gets it. And uh, I've been reminded in the last few weeks of just how different God and Santa really are. Because I think a lot of times we think about him in the same light, right? Like Santa, he's this big, red-suited, bearded guy who gives good gifts to good people and bad gifts to bad people, and he keeps his lists, and he checks them twice. And I think a lot of times that's how we think about God. He's got the good list, and he's got the bad list, and if I'll be good, he'll be good to me. But if I'm bad, better watch out, right? Here's what I want to tell you tonight. God has one list, and all of us are on it, and it's the bad list. But here's the good news. Look at me. Jesus came to this earth 2,000 years ago to rip up that list. And so you got to know tonight that it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what your past looks like, the mistakes you've made. I don't care what baggage you drug into this building tonight. you got to know that God loves you in spite of you. And he wants a relationship with you, an eternal relationship with you through Jesus Christ his son. And if you need to place your faith in Jesus tonight for the first time as God, Savior, and Lord, I want to give you the opportunity to do that right now. So I want to invite you all over the room to stand with me. And as you stand, I just want to ask you to bow your heads all over the room. There's no magic prayer that saves anyone, but the Bible does tell us that we've got to be willing to believe and confess some things about Jesus for forgiveness, for salvation. And so if you need to accept him tonight for the first time, I just encourage you to say something like this to God. Say, God, I know I'm imperfect. I know I'm a sinful person. But God, I believe you love me in spite of me, God. And tonight I am confessing that I believe you loved me so much that you came after me. I believe that Jesus is God and that he died for the forgiveness of my sins, that he rose from the dead so that I could be saved from death and hell. And God, tonight I'm asking you to save me, to rescue me, to do for me what I know I can't do for myself. God, make me a new person. God, give me freedom from the things I need freedom from. God, give me hope in this life and for the next. God, use my life in the way, God, that you intended when you created me. and I want to ask you to do a favor with all our heads bowed and eyes closed. If you just prayed that prayer with me or something like it to accept Jesus as your Savior for the first time, would you just do me a quick favor and would you just look up at me real quick? Just real quick, just look up at me. Listen, all over the room, if you just prayed that prayer for the first time to accept Christ and you're looking at me, I want to ask you to take a simple step in just a moment. Nothing weird. I'm not going to ask you to come up front. But in just a moment, we're going to have a great team of people in the back of the room by the door that you entered through. 
And we've got a gift that we want to give you right now in this moment. It's some resources that are going to help you get started in your new relationship with Jesus. And we want to know, or we want you to know, that there's a church here in Cartersville that loves you. We want you to know that we're praying for you after you leave this place. And we just want to celebrate with you what God has done in your life tonight. So in just a moment, after I'm done praying, I'm going to ask you, our response team's going to move, and I'm going to ask you in that moment to move as well, to walk right to the back of the room. You're not going to miss barely any of the service, and we're going to get you back in here to finish worshiping with us, all right? So God, I just pray these people that were just looking at me, staring at me, give them courage to take a step tonight. And God, we thank you for what you've just done in their lives, Lord. Thank you for the way you love us. And God, we declare to you tonight that we love you more than we can express in words. God, we pray all this in your name and in your name alone.